Today is Thursday, June 11th, 2020. On this day in 2001, domestic terrorist Timothy McVeigh was executed in federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Today we're covering the execution of the Oklahoma City bomber. Let's go back to the early morning hours of June 11, 2001, just outside of a federal prison in Indiana. It was still dark outside, but there was already plenty of activity in Terre Haute that morning. News cameras were all lined up alongside the road outside of the prison, looking to get the perfect shot. They were all there to report on the death of Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. Every reporter knew the story by heart, and every half an hour that day, they would have to recount it live on air. A little over six years before, McVeigh drove a rental truck with a 5,000-pound bomb in the back to Oklahoma City. He then parked it outside the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building and walked away. Minutes later, the bomb exploded and the building was destroyed. The blast killed 168 people and injured over 600 more. At the time, it was the largest terrorist attack committed on American soil. After so many years, the families of the victims and the nation at large were ready to see McVeigh face justice. At 5 a.m. on the morning of his execution, while news crews gathered, McVeigh requested to speak with a Catholic priest. He asked the priest to perform the last rites. Historically, for this ceremony to be performed, an individual has to confess their sins and be remorseful for their actions. Up until that point, McVeigh had never shown any remorse for his deeds in Oklahoma City. It's unknown if he finally broke his stance and confessed to the priest. Perhaps in those final moments, he had a change of heart, but perhaps not. By 6.30 a.m., the guards entered McVeigh's holding cell to get him ready for execution. According to the warden, Harley Lappin, McVeigh was cooperative and showed no resistance when the gurney was brought in. He climbed right up and sat down. He was then restrained and had an IV placed into his leg. A little before 7 a.m., he was wheeled into the execution chamber. It was the first time that one would be used in the United States since 1963. And it was a national event. McVeigh's gurney in place, the curtains were pulled back to expose three windows. There were 25 sets of eyes looking at McVeigh. Ten of them belonged to victims or survivors hidden behind one-way glass. Another five were government officials, and the last group of ten were journalists. As McVeigh surveyed the room, he nodded at each and every person he saw, pausing to make eye contact. He was doing his best to have a sense of control over a situation that was far out of his grasp. McVeigh was silent and stern. At 7.06, the announcement was made that everything was ready. McVeigh slowly swallowed and stared up at the ceiling. 
There was no panic in his eyes, just a blank resolution to what was about to happen. It was an odd feeling for everyone in the room. The families had been haunted by this man for the past six years, and it was all about to come to an end. The pain would always be there, but justice would be served. For those in the media, this would be the end of a saga that had stretched on from McVeigh's capture through his court case and appeals. He was skinnier now than he'd ever been, but with his crew-cut hair and light color eyes, he looked like anyone else that you might pass by on the street. He wasn't special, he was just a man. And yet, McVeigh was capable of great evil. As the gallery looked on, all manner of thoughts raced through their heads, but one kept coming back. What had happened to this man to make him end up in this room, strapped to this gurney, responsible for so much death and destruction. Up next, more about Timothy McVeigh's life. Now, back to the story. On June 11, 2001, Timothy McVeigh was executed for orchestrating the Oklahoma City bombing. But long before he was a domestic terrorist, McVeigh grew up in the small upstate New York town of Pendleton. He lived like almost any other suburban kid. His classmates said he was quiet and polite. He was into computers, and in his senior yearbook in 1986, he was voted as one most likely to be a programmer. He had another hobby, though, guns. McVeigh was obsessed with them and was said to have brought them to school a handful of times to impress others. After dropping out of college, McVeigh worked as an armored car guard, which allowed him to indulge in his firearm hobby. When he was on the job, he always had a gun on his person, and those who worked with him later expressed his overzealousness for them. But even though he enjoyed his work, McVeigh felt like there was something missing, a true purpose. It wasn't until 1988 that McVeigh found what he was looking for. He enlisted in the army and felt right at home. He believed in the government and thought that they were doing everything in their power to protect the citizens of the United States. But in 1990, McVeigh was deployed to fight in the Gulf War. It was there that he killed someone for the first time, an eye-opening experience. He knew it was justified, it was self-defense, and in the heat of battle. But he couldn't ignore the global implications of what he and his country were doing. He wondered what gave him the right to go to a foreign country to kill others. A year later, he made it home and decided not to re-enlist. He was honorably discharged and came out of the army disillusioned with the U.S. government. McVeigh never felt like he could trust their actions and didn't think they had the best interests of their citizens at heart. These feelings were further stoked when he heard about the incident at Ruby Ridge in 1992, where federal agents killed members of a homesteader family in a standoff. By nearly all accounts, their killing was accidental, but the agents' actions sparked a backlash, especially amongst some far-right groups, which McVeigh was now a part of. Then, a year later, the siege at Waco happened, 
once again, McVeigh saw government agents attacking American citizens. There, federal agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives entered in a month-long standoff with a cult known as the Branch Davidians over weapons charges. McVeigh was so taken by what was happening that he drove out to Waco to see for himself what was going on. It was the next major catalyst in his escalating extremist thoughts. On April 19, 1993, the ATF decided that the standoff needed to come to an end and besieged the compound. But the result was a tragedy. A fire was sparked by a gas grenade, and the entire compound went up in flames. 76 people perished in the fire, 25 of them children. For McVeigh, it was the final straw. He vowed revenge on the government, who he still thought weren't looking out for his best interests. He had to act before they did something more radical against their own people. He believed that the ATF agents at the Waco standoff were based out of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, so that was where he'd strike. Everyone in the room on June 11, 2001, the day that McVeigh was executed, knew his story and knew how he ended up where he was. It was just dumbfounding anyone was capable of something so terrible. For all of McVeigh's complaints about the government and their handling of Waco, where 25 children died, he was a hypocrite. When his bomb went off, it killed 19 children and 149 adults. No tragic background story or personal crusade would change that. At 7.10 a.m., with the hard fluorescent lights beating down on him, the 25 people in the room looked on as the first drug was administered. It was a sedative known as sodium pentothal and was meant to put him to sleep. McVeigh's breathing slowed as he lost consciousness. A minute later, he was given pancuronium bromide to incapacitate his lungs. Shortly after, he was given one last IV push of a drug called potassium chloride, which stopped his heart. At 7.14 a.m., Timothy McVeigh was pronounced dead. Those in the room stated that his skin turned a pale yellow color. Shortly after, the curtains were closed and his body was taken out of the room. The federal government had handed out their highest form of punishment. Timothy McVeigh would no longer be able to harm anyone else. And some of the victims' families were finally able to get some closure after over six years of anguish. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more information on the Oklahoma City bombing, check out our episodes of Conspiracy Theories, which explore the controversy around the attack. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. 
We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.